Father, thank and praise you for the freedom we have this morning to gather together in your name under your words, to hear it read and preached, to sing praises to you. We're mindful of that privilege and of brothers and sisters around the world for whom that is not the case. And so help us to make the most of this opportunity. Help us to hear what you are saying to us, us as a church and us as individuals. And speak to us in the situations in which we find ourselves, the, the good weeks and the bad weeks, the reality of the mess of life. Speak to us, we pray, for your glory. Amen. So we are more connected than we have ever been before. The world, our global village, is is decreasing in size day by day by day. In just a matter of seconds, you can speak to anybody on the other side of the world. You can communicate with them. You can send a message via Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or email or WhatsApp or Hangouts or all kinds of things. Press some buttons and before you know it, it's on their phone. You can speak to them on Skype and FaceTime. You can actually see them, see their expressions. You can communicate with them. You can interact with them in a kind of face-to-face way. And yet they're thousands of miles away. We are more connected than we have ever been before. But the irony is we are more lonely than we have ever been before, too. Over 300 years ago, the the poet and the preacher John Donne famously said that no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And yet, despite despite our connectedness, we are increasingly living as islands. There was an article on the BBC website just a little while ago showing that studies have consistently shown one in ten of us say that we are lonely. That's, that's been a number that's remained pretty steady for a while. But the worrying thing about this article was the increasing number amongst young people who had described themselves as lonely. Various possible reasons that they spoke of. I'm sure we could come up with more. They say that geographical distance is is increasingly an issue because you don't necessarily settle where where your family are. You move to a different place. You follow the jobs. Marriage breakdown. More and more people living in families without both parents. Multiple caring responsibilities. Because of the better standard of living and better health, then we have an increasingly large older population and then there are right responsibilities to be looking after parents and grandparents. Longer working hours, they speak of. It's that increased productivity, intensity, the pressures of the workplace that I know a number here will feel. Maybe it's just more and more going on. We've got our phones and our tablets and we never switch off. We're thinly spread over hundreds of people but nobody actually knows us. Nobody actually knows what's going on. We are more connected than we've ever been before, but more lonely. I take it in church, that really shouldn't be. There should be a genuine depth of relationships, a a genuine love for one another. 
a love that is fueled by and modelled on the cross. But I hinted it in passing last week. It's very easy in church to think about churches as a hotel. Now, you've heard me talk of restaurants. This is a hotel. That is, we're in the same building, but most of us are in separate rooms and we do our own things on our own. And we come together now and again into the dining hall and we meet up and we mingle maybe on a Sunday or through the week, a little bit, but then we go back to our rooms again and we shut the door and we lock them. In case anybody gets too close, in case anybody sees the real us. I'm not sure that works when we read the Bible. When you see the life of the early church in the New Testament, I'm just not sure whether that that functions. I know there's a temptation towards it. It's much easier, isn't it, to keep people at arm's length? It's much harder to have people seeing the real you, the mess that is the real you. But it seems to me an underlying foundation of the Bible is that we were made for each other. We were made for community. We were made for relationships. And as we come to the end of 2 Timothy 4, as Pat was saying at the end of the letter, The final verses, what we see with Paul is that he is vulnerable and exposed. He is frail. He is human. These are very personal words. This is the end of the road for him. And so he comes to Timothy with various needs and requests and desires that show us his weakness. And so I take it as we read it, we see something of a model for us as Christian community. We see his need of others and so we see our needs. Of one another. Take it at the heart of it. Our our Trinitarian God is a God of community. And so created in his image, we were made for interdependence. We were made for one another. We weren't made to be islands. And so the first thing you see in these verses, it's very simple. We need other people. This is a passage foundationally about people. And sometimes in life, when everything is stripped away and when the rug is pulled out from us and and our support structures go and everything is a mess, then suddenly we're reminded that we can't do it alone. And that's okay. We realise that we can't be islands and we need one another. As you focus on Paul in these verses, you see at least three striking needs that he kind of brings up. That There are firstly relational needs and frustrations. Here we read of people that Paul has invested in. People whom Paul has poured his life into. We saw that back at the start of the letter, the, the generational nature of the Christian faith. That is, in human terms at least, the Christian faith is dead within a generation unless we pass on to others, unless it's passed on to new people, unless the relay baton, unless the Olympic flame does move on to the next generation, then humanly speaking, we're finished. And so we saw that, that Paul kind of looked down, if you like, to young people growing up and described Timothy being taught by his mum and his gran, by uh, Lois and Eunice. We saw as well, looking out, Timothy was discipled by Paul. And so Paul has sent some of these disciples out. He's sent them on. He's poured himself into them. And he's allocated them off to different church plants. So verse 10. 
Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, then verse 12, Tychicus to Ephesus. He sends his best. He sends them on to Bista and to Cowley. And no doubt it's painful, but it's what must be done. But it's clear as well that it's not quite as simple as that, because he's been let down by others. People are messy, people have let Paul down, no doubt people will have let you down. I think that's one of the things we must take away from these verses, is the reality of the fact that when we invest in people, they may get distracted, and they may wander off, and they may let us down, and they may even run after other loves. Look at verse 10 with Demas. What's happened to him? He's loved the world. You sensing parallels with chapter 3? Lovers of self, pleasure, money. Demas has, I think, literally agapeed the world. It's taken his allegiance. Stolen his heart. Now, the way he talks of Demas, it's possible that he's not entirely thrown in the towel in terms of faith. It's possible this is just a falling out with Paul, but he certainly seems to have deserted him. And that desert word in verse 10 comes up in 16 as well. Something like the scenario that seems to be going on there in verse 16. Verse 16, at my first offence no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. He's, it seems, talking in verse 16 of a specific event. It's a legal language. It's defense in court. He was entirely unsupported. Everyone wandered off. And we may not be exactly sure when it is. We'll talk about it in a moment. But we may not be exactly sure when it is. But he felt abandoned. He felt abandoned such that people note, well, he... He looks a bit like Jesus here. At his moment of trial, at his moment of need, his friends have walked out on him. Paul is alone. People are a mixed bag. He's, he's sent them out. There are friends who he's disagreed with. And thirdly, there were just plain enemies as well. Verse 14 and 15, Alexander. Alexander the metal worker. We've mentioned a few times over the weeks. There's this external pressure, this hostility towards Paul and the gospel. Verse 14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Which gets people asking the question, why is there this contrast between Alexander in verse 16, sorry, Alexander in verse 14, 15, And then his friends, the deserters, in verse 16. Why does Paul forgive the deserters, may it not be held against them, verse 16, and seemingly not forgive Alexander? You should be on your guard against him. What's the difference between them? Why does Paul react differently? I take it the deserters are likely to be Christians who have got it wrong. Which is maybe why Paul says, may it not be held against them. Alexander is simply an enemy of the gospel. 
He was at one point in the community of the church. You can see that back in 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. Now he's very clearly an opponent. He has moved so far that he is now seen as an enemy. And so Paul is happy to to let him pay for his sin. He has handed him over to the Lord and says, may he face justice. People are a mixed bag. It's interesting now as well, Paul is not alone. Verse 11, Timothy is now with him. Sorry, Luke is now with him. That's almost certainly Luke of the Gospel. Luke who, who wrote the Gospel that we have, Annax. Possibly Luke who scribed these words as Paul dictated them. Luke is there, but he needs more as well, because there are ministry needs too. So we've thought about relationships, now ministry as well. Verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And again, Mark is interesting. As you work your way through Acts, you see there's a story going on with Mark. Mark initially fell out with Paul, but seemingly now is helpful and useful and trusted. But why does he want him? Because Paul is being poured out. If these are the final words of Paul, if he is being poured out like a drink offering, if the end is coming, why does he want Mark there? What ministry is he talking about? I don't know, maybe it's Mark who will support and follow him in his ministry. Mark, who will help to pick up the mantle where he is. Again, looking ahead to the next generation, even on his deathbed. He's wanting others to come and support the ministry that he's doing. He's not taking his foot off the pedal, but making provision for when he's gone. So there's relational stuff, there's ministry stuff, there's physical stuff as well. Very simply, verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. It might be warm in here now. But when temperature drops, as it has done in the last couple of weeks in Oxford, and you've got no central heating, you're in a notorious prison, Paul needs to feel warm. He wants his cloak. It would have been thick and expensive, maybe made of animal hide or goat hair. would have kept him particularly warm at the night. And so verse 21, do your best to get here before Christmas, before winter, sorry. Christmas on the mind. Very practical knees. And then, not just the cloak, but these scrolls and parchments, verse 13 as well. Again, we're not quite sure why. He's at the very end of the road. What does he want them for? Maybe they were Old Testament scriptures or letters or correspondence or personal notes. Maybe he wants some final study before he goes. Maybe he wants to hand them on. But whatever it is, he needs someone to bring them to him. It's interesting, isn't it? Often Paul is painted as this, this kind of lone ranger hero. He's this aspirational model, this, this unattainable guy. And we just think, well, I'm not like him. He's the cold, spiritual superman. And yet, I think maybe more than anywhere else in the New Testament, here we see something of Paul as a real person. He's lonely and needing others. He's frail and he needs to be warm. He needs people around him. And yet he's still relationally warm, right at the end, 19 to 21. These are real people in real places with 
a breadth of backgrounds and cultures. Some of them we can read of in Acts and other parts of the New Testament. Some are just mentioned here. But even at the end, Paul is wanting to to send greetings and warmth to others. People. People are complicated. People are a mixed bag. And yet people are what ministry is all about, in one sense. I think that's a big take-home message for us at the end of this letter, that at least for me personally it is, we're not a hotel. We're not living isolated lives where we lock ourselves away, but we need each other and that's okay. It's easier to lock the door. It's easier to get on with it on your own. If you become an island, people can't hurt you anymore. People can't let you down. But become an island and in a sense you become less human. Because we were made for each other. You've probably heard it before, but C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I'd love us this morning to kind of admit that we need each other. To know something of that tendency in us and particularly more so in our wider culture that, that we might be connected to all sorts of people but we don't really know each other or are known by others. We can still be very lonely. And you come to a passage like this and you come face to face with our weakness. You come face to face with something of how the church family ought to work. One of the extraordinary privileges of serving you as pastor is I get to hear stuff. I get to hear lots of stuff. I know a number of people in this room who, who, who are struggling at the moment. All kinds of ways, all kinds of things. People feeling low or struggling with depression. People suffering the effects of old age. People relationally removed and hurting and they've gone into their rooms and they've shut the door. People struggling physically. And yet I know a number who are generously loving others. Who are reaching into those lives and giving very practically, whether it's time or energy or resources or friendship or love. It's humbling to see something of this body at work. An honesty about weakness, but a warmth and a love for one another. I'd urge you to keep going. Keep going, keep going in terms of honesty and vulnerability. Keep being real about struggles. But keep going as well as we love one another. As a cynical watching world looks in and sees the depth of relationships in church, they haven't got an answer.
I want to say as well, before we move on to the second point, that investing in others, intentionally pouring yourself into others, is worth it to you. We've, we've mentioned a couple of times this morning already this sort of one in 21 thing. Could you, for one meal a week, meet with somebody else to read the Bible together or read a book or pray for each other or just be honest, but genuinely, deliberately mentor and disciple, encourage and teach? And so maybe there will be the Tituses and the Tychicuses and the others that we invest in and we send on. We pour ourselves into them and we send them off into the world. And that's good, that's part of the nature of Oxford. We know that. It's part of the nature of this church, that we invest in people and we generously love them and send them. But we need to be aware that there might be Demas's too, verse 10. I can look back on my life and think of people that I've met up with and prayed for and had good time with and read the Bible with. But for whatever reason, they they wander off. Other loves capture them and captivate them. And it's gutting, but it's worth investing. It's worth keeping going. It's worth persevering. So first point, very simply, we need other people. Second point, very simply, we need our God. Have a look particularly at verse 17 to 18. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Do you see, Paul was abandoned and deserted and he felt very, very, very alone. But he wasn't actually alone. He was standing in court and and he may have had no one to stand up for him, but the Lord was standing with him, giving him strength. Timothy, when you're alone in Ephesus, remember that you're not actually alone. The account he's talking of may well have been Paul standing in front of a large public court. Some people think even in Rome, some people even think the Emperor Nero. But even there, even in that setting, he's not about self-preservation, he is just about the gospel. The Lord enables him to preach the word out of season. And if it is Nero that he is speaking before, if that is the public setting, if he is before the Gentile ruler of the entire world, and that's why he can say all the Gentiles might hear it because there will be crowds and crowds and crowds listening in and they hear the gospel message and they take it home with them. And it gets passed on and on and on around the world. In the place of power, Paul is strengthened to preach of Jesus. And so he looks back to this time, verse 17, and he sees God's faithfulness in the past. He sees him rescue him, and then he looks ahead into the future, and he is confident that nothing can thwart God's plans for him. His life and his ministry are in the Lord's hands. That's a striking note, I think, in what is quite a discordant passage. Yes, there is frailty and loneliness, darkness, 
but he has hope. Despite these things, God is going to be with him in the future. Paul is 100% confident that the Lord will get him home, that he will rescue him from every evil attack, that he will bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. I take it that truth is to be the bedrock for us as Christians. To not cling to verse 18 is going to leave us perpetually anxious and afraid. When things look hopeless and there's false teaching in church and there's opposition outside and there's every evil attack, that seems to be Satan's doing. God is with us. He is with us. It's just wishful thinking. We're just whistling in the dark to to try and get us through the scary world, believing what we want to believe in to get us through life, making up the imaginary friend, the sky father, as the atheist loves to say. I take it that the reason we have hope is not based on feelings, it's not based on a poem that works for us, it's based on the reality of the resurrection. Go back to Easter and look at Easter and see the hope that we have in Christ. Whatever the mess of the now, Jesus has been raised again and ascended to the Father and he will come back. And if he's done that, then he will keep you safe to get with him, to be with him. Even now he is at your side. If you're here with the kind of privilege that I have of teaching the Bible in different places. This must be a truth for us to cling to. Maybe it's in the aloneness of being called rigid or or naive or dogmatic. Perhaps the aloneness of the reality of friends who have lost because of you faithfully held on to the message and the gospel. I can think of ministers around the country who feel very alone because they won't budge from Jesus. They won't budge from the gospel. They won't say what itching ears want to hear. They will keep preaching Jesus. They can be sure that God is with them. And to be frank, as you look ahead to the next generation, as I think of my kids handing the gospel on to them, what kind of a world are they going to live in? How are they going to keep going and keep speaking up? I think there will be an increasing aloneness. Increasing temptations to love other things and not stand firm. And God will strengthen though. But I take it 17 and 18 stand true for us in all kinds of situations in life as well. In the reality of the broken world, as we pray the kind of prayers we've already prayed this morning, as we've seen the news, as you know the the mess of your life and what's going on, as you know the reality of your hearts, whatever it is for you, if you're just clinging on by a thread, if it's work or family or friendships or faith, whatever it is, know that he will strengthen you. And he is with you. And you look ahead and you see this thing looming over your diary already. Something that is approaching. Well, you just feel weak and nervous and all this talk of speaking to your friends of Jesus this Christmas. and Just know that he is by your side and with you. 
And for those dark moments when you're not even sure that God is there, let alone him just being distant, trust that there is more to come. Trust that you have a hope in him and that finally you are secure and will be brought to be with him. When you feel like throwing in the towel, keep going. Keep trusting him. If he died for you and he was raised again for you, he will come back and get you. He will keep you to be with him. I don't know how you felt about 2 Timothy. It's interesting, the word that Sarah used in the kid slot is a word that I've used a lot. And that is it's been a wrestle. It's been a challenge week by week. I don't know quite what it is. I'm, I guess I'm a relatively young pastor still. Maybe parallels with Timothy and some of the things that he faces. But even in these last few weeks, the Lord has ignited in me, reignited the desire for the word to go out and do its work, to be investing in others, generations to come, and then to go out from here as well. Already he's kindly opened doors for me, for us as a family, to get to know non-Christians in this area, folk who wouldn't call themselves Christians, and opportunities to speak to them of Christ already. It's my prayer that that would be multiplied in this room and beyond that we would be prepared to suffer to do that, that we would do the work of discipleship and pour ourselves into others, that we would do the work of an evangelist, and that the word would ring out from us. Such a thrill to hear of Bista, of um, Cowley Church community, of others and other initiatives represented in this room. Wouldn't that be amazing for that to happen more and more and more, for this church to become kind of humbly famous as a church that sends people out generously, that the word rings out from us. There may be a sense of urgency as we finish this final chapter. The urgency of the task at hand. But remembering our frailty too. Remembering our weakness. So when Monday comes and Tuesday comes and Wednesday comes and then the panic sets in and, and you feel alone and uncertain about opening your mouth for Jesus, remember 17 and 18. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder this morning of the reality of our frailty, of our weakness, of what we're really like. Thank you as we look at Paul, we see in concentrated form 
some of the needs that each of us have and we have as a church family, as a community. Thank you for reminding us that we need one another. Thank you for reminding us that we need you. Lord, how easily we crash on and try and do things in our own strength. And so we thank you that you stand at our side and you strengthen us to speak for you. And that you will rescue us from every evil attack and bring us safely to your kingdom. Keep us trusting you, we pray. Thank you for your extraordinary grace and kindness. In your son's name. Amen.